Pardon me, I have a little setup to do. No 10-foot ladder today, no worries. Lots of people were worried about that when I was climbing that ladder. Should have been me, but I wasn't thinking about it. All right. Thank you, Scott. Keep coming. I'm going to end up tripping over this thing. Why don't I move it back a little? There we go. Thank you, sir. All right. No, this is not O Kids. But sometimes we need to see things. And we need to be children again and again and again as our Father wants to love on us and teach us things. So towards that end, let's pray. Father God, thank you. Father, thank you for being real. Thank you that I'm real and that we're real and that you are awesome. And thank you that our lives really do have infinite value and purpose. And thank you that we get to gather this morning as your bride and as your church and be reminded of your glory. And of your desire for us, made in your image, to reflect that glory in a dark world. Holy Spirit, come. Fall afresh on us because we need it more desperately than we know. Father, use this broken vessel to be a channel of your truth, your life, your light, your encouragement. Encourage me even as I preach. Thank you for this time. Have your way with us. Have your way with Orangewood for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, I'm preaching on the fourth name in that passage in Isaiah 9, and we've been preaching through the different names. Um, And the fourth one is Prince of Peace. How are you doing in the peace department this week? My week was amazingly interesting. I'm not going to go into it because your week was amazingly interesting too, wasn't it? And there were many things that happened along the way that very easily 
could have robbed me of my peace, and if I'm honest, did. And sometimes that's the way it is, and walking with Christ is sometimes like a roller coaster, isn't it? The beautiful thing is, is you're buckled in. And you will end up where you started, but better. You won't fall out. He won't lose you. And somehow in the twists and turns that come, he does something in us and even through us to those around us. And it's amazing that he can do that. That's how he is. So, Prince of Peace this morning. Did you know that out of about 195 countries on the planet, give and take, only about 10 of them are not in a conflict or a war today? Isn't that crazy? That's crazy. This thing that all of us desire, peace. We all want peace. We all want peace inside, and we'd love to have peace outside We all want it. I don't think anybody doesn't want peace for themselves. We all desire it, but we certainly don't know how to make it with ourselves sometimes, with one another very well. And if we all want it and we can't seem to find it, perhaps the problem is within all of us. Wouldn't that be a potential solution to why we long for something and for millennia we cannot accomplish it? We long for something, and it's a good thing, but we can't grasp it. We can't get it. We can't hold it. We can't contain it. We can't keep it very well. There just might be something within all of us that innately resists making the necessary sacrifices in order to make and maintain peace. Could that be? There's something in moi that resists the very thing I long for in my heart of hearts, peace. Hey, the context of this passage in Isaiah 9 Just a reminder, because we've talked about it. Isaiah, the prophet of God, around 750 B.C., is called to speak to King Ahaz of the northern kingdom of Israel. And Israel Israel finds itself in a time of conflict. There's a world, there's a dominating regional power, Assyria. And Assyria has gotten all the smaller kingdoms' attention because it's powerful and it's big and it's advancing and the surrounding neighbors of northern Israel, this country, the Israel, the surrounding kingdoms, they want to uh, uh, align themselves together in order to protect themselves from Assyria. And they go, they want King Ahaz to get into this alliance and, and, and King Ahaz doesn't want to do that. He wants to remain independent. But he seeks the counsel of his prophet, and the prophet speaks into it. And what does God tell King Ahaz? King Ahaz, do not make any alliances. Trust me. That's what God tells Ahaz through Isaiah. Trust me. Follow me. Trust me. I will be your protection. I will be your peace. And King Ahaz doesn't follow God's direction through Isaiah. 
And these nations around Israel, they're kind of angry that King Ahaz won't join them. So they decide they're going to attack Ahaz. Well, what does Ahaz do? He then makes an alliance with Assyria, the big dog, to protect him from these other tribes. Bad decision. Because that ends up going horribly wrong and Assyria ends up in time wiping out Israel. So into that comes this amazing prophecy in Isaiah. He speaks and prophesies of a coming judgment, a near coming judgment, and a future hope for God's people. And that's the text we read and we keep reading. Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. That sounds awesome. Peace growing, growing, growing. The increase of his government, his authority spreading, spreading, spreading. And this is good news. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Wow, there's the prophecy. So now I bump forward to around 4 BC, Luke 1, 26 through 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And then lastly, one more text, and this is the shepherds in the field at night, and they receive a visitation from an angel, and he tells them good news, and he says this, Luke two eleven through 14. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby 
wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So there's the scripture. The prophecy of the coming child, the announcement of angels to Mary and to the shepherds. So if this child is truly prince of peace and of his government and of peace increasing and increasing and increasing, why in 2018 do we have uh, out of 195 nations, only 10 that are not in conflict. Is he really the Prince of Peace? Have you asked yourself that this holiday season? You've been reminded maybe by the Spirit that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. You've heard this text over the last several weeks and you have not experienced peace in your life. You didn't experience peace this week in your life. And you're going, where are you? Why isn't your peace increasing and increasing and increasing? I hear that the gospel is spreading. I hear that in countries like China, the gospel is spreading and churches are being planted. I hear that. But there's so much conflict. Is this Prince of Peace? Is Jesus really the Prince of Peace? Perhaps he's not all he claims to be. That's an option. Maybe he's not God at all, some think. Or there's another alternative here. Perhaps, perhaps we are misunderstanding what Isaiah means, what God means, and what this name Prince of Peace means. So that's what I want to look at this morning. And I also want to draw your attention to the fact that when the Prince of Peace arrives, those through whom he comes experiencing anything, experience anything but peaceful circumstances. Mary, a 15-year-old Jewish girl, not wealthy, engaged to be married, is visited by an angel who tells her she's going to have, be pregnant without a husband. What are the circumstances that are going to come down on her in her community when they realize that she's not married? She got pregnant when she wasn't married. What is this? How can this be? What will happen to her reputation in her religious paternalistic culture? What will happen to Mary? Don't you, I don't know what she thought when the angel was there, but when she said, I am a servant of the Lord, let it be to me as you say. Wow. I think her mind was sharp enough and fast enough to go, wait a minute, there are some consequences here that could come my way. 
What's Joseph going to think? Are my plans for marriage over? What's going to happen? There's so much she did not know and could not have known. So many ways her peace was being shaken to the core. And yet she responded with, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your words. Wow. So I still ask, if the Prince of Peace comes and those through whom he comes, their lives are so disrupted, interrupted with things they did not imagine. Zachariah, right? Zachariah, religious man married to Elizabeth, working in the temple. He's tending the incense that day. He goes in. He meets Gabriel inside. And Gabriel gives him good news. You and your wife are going to have a son. Oh my gosh, they'd let that dream go long ago. They'd prayed and prayed and prayed for a son. For Elizabeth to be barren in her culture and in her community, it was a stigma. God didn't answer that prayer for years, decades. And then Gabriel shows up inside the temple where Zechariah is and says, you're going to have a child. And you know the story, probably. Zechariah asks a different question from Mary. He says, how will I know? Mary says, how will this be? I'm a virgin. How will I become pregnant? She didn't not believe that God couldn't do it. She was curious as to how it was going to happen. Very intimate thing. Zechariah's question was, how will I know? Basically expressing, I'm not sure I believe you. And graciously, yes, you may not think so, but graciously gives him a sign. Not the one he was expecting or probably wanted, but okay, Zechariah, you're not, because you didn't believe me, you're going to be mute until this all happens exactly the way I said it was going to happen. So look, Zechariah's world's turned upside down. After he goes in to deal with the incense in the temple, he then is supposed to come out and stand on the steps and deliver. He's supposed to, there are more priestly responsibilities he's supposed to do for the people when he comes out of the temple. He can't do them. His job is interrupted. He can't communicate verbally anymore. Peace. So peace doesn't come to Mary. Peace doesn't come to Zechariah. So the question I ask, how is he the Prince of Peace? We might be misunderstanding what this means. I might be misunderstanding what this means. So let's look at it. Prince of Peace. Prince. What's a prince? Well, Disney's helped us out a lot with that through the years. We think of prince as being a son of a king. He's not king yet. He's a prince. Okay, He's the son of a king. He's going to be king. And there are some, some similarities to Jesus, isn't there? Jesus is the son of God. Jesus... Uh, has a father, yes, a father is God of all things. So there's some similarities there, but in Isaiah's context, this word prince meant more authority, leader. He's the authority over peace. Jesus is the authority over peace. So that's the peace part. Well, what about or the, the uh, prince part? What about the peace part? Well, and here's where it breaks down. 
In English, we have a definition for peace, freedom. It's freedom from disturbance, quiet and tranquility. That's peace. Freedom from or the cessation of war and violence. So that's our definition of peace that we're most familiar with. It's basically the lack of something, right? But the Hebrew word for peace, which, and I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but I'm learning, and it's pretty cool to read and study and come to this deeper understanding of this word, Hebrew word, shalom. Shalom. Shalom is not simply the absence of something. It certainly can include the cessation of war and violence. That's certainly a part of shalom, but it's so much more than that. And that's why I've brought my friends here. So bear with me. I want to show you something. Because the word shalom can refer to a wall that is whole and that has all of its blocks. Shalom. It can also refer to a stone. Yikes. It can also refer to a stone. Better. A stone that is whole. No cracks. It's sound. It's complete. There's nothing missing in this stone. It's shalom. My wall is no longer shalom. Is it? It's missing something. So relationally, to... To experience shalom relationally, did things happen relationally that misalign you with another person? Did circumstances come along where you're not experiencing shalom relationally with another person because there's some issue, some conflict, some circumstance has arose and there are hurt feelings or there's a reason for mistrust? And you don't have shalom relationally. And you long for it. You know you want it. But you may not know how to fix it. And you may try to fix it. And you may do things to get shalom that you think are going to fix the problem. And very often, it doesn't. Sometimes it makes things worse. So shalom is a rich word. To bring shalom means to bring restoration, realignment to that which is otherwise disintegrated, fragmented, or incomplete. So if I want to bring shalom to this wall, I'm going to provide that which it lacks, and I'm going to place this back in its proper place. Shalom. Chaos. See, even in my sermon, there are great illustrations that happen as you go. Stay. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Great Divorce. 
And in this story, there are inhabitants of hell who get to ride a bus and get to go to heaven. And some interesting things happen to the characters who travel on this bus as they get to heaven. Um, And when they get there, they experience some things that are unpleasant to them. In heaven, everything is solid. Whereas in hell and themselves, they're, they're ghostly. They're thin. And as they get to closer, closer to heaven, things get more solid. And once they get to heaven, things are so solid that a blade of grass penetrates their feet. An apple is as heavy as a bowling ball. Water is solid, even as it cascades down a river. The metaphor is one of wholeness in heaven and disintegration in hell. Those in heaven are solid, real, human beings made whole by the Lord of heaven, their creator. Those in hell are miserable, disintegrated souls, ghosts, who in living for self have lived for small things, shriveling up in the process. One of the things that happens in the story is this concept that there are some, I don't, sorry, I haven't, didn't reread the book for the, I read it a long time ago. But there are those who desire to get away from heaven, who want to go back to hell because it is so uncomfortable for them to experience reality. And the teacher explains to the narrator, there is always something they insist on keeping even at the price of their misery. There is always something they prefer to joy, joy being reality. Reality can be tough, can't it? Living in reality can be difficult, and sometimes we pursue avenues of pseudo-peace so that we can numb the discomfort of what is so real in our lives. Does that make sense? So in this story, we have a great metaphor. There is always something they insist on keeping, even at the price of their misery. There is always something they prefer to joy that is reality. You see it easily enough in a spoiled child that would sooner miss its play and its supper than say it was sorry and be friends. It's a great illustration. Then this, the disintegrated person is the disordered person who prefers the fondling of unappeasable lust when joy is being offered. C.S. Lewis, in another place, uses that analogy. We would rather sit in a rain puddle making mud pies than enjoy a day at the shore. 
That's the choice that we make sometimes because we choose to live in fantasy. We choose to live numbed out to the harshness of reality at times. And rather than lean on what is true, we pursue what is false. So now we have Mary, the arrival of the Prince of Peace has been announced. It means all kinds of trouble for her. Engaged, a virgin, pregnant at 15 in a highly moralistic paternal culture. Yikes. Yet she responds to this news in in an amazing way. She's troubled by the greeting. I think that's interesting. Remember what the greeting was? She's troubled by the greeting. What does he say? Is it really all that troubling? He says... Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. And I kind of thought about this, put myself in Mary's shoes, so to speak. What if an angel showed up and said that to me? What, what would, what would, if he said it to you, what would, be your, what would be your temptation? Greetings. O favored one. The Lord is with you. Yikes. Does he really know who I am? I know who I am. And I know based on my performance that I'm probably not going to be very favored by the holiest holy being that there is. I'm going to be suspect of these words. I'm going to go, well, what's the catch? <laughs> what's the catch? And I think Mary was troubled in part because she knew who she was. This is a girl who, by discipline, seems to live in reality and lean into it. And she was troubled by it. I'm speculating. But if God's favor is earned, I know I don't deserve it. So there must be something else going on here. And there is. So what does Mary do? She asks him a question. I love that. So does Zechariah, by the way. And I want to encourage you. I think one of the applications of these two stories is that if you're troubled with something in God's economy or with God or with your life, it's a really good thing to go to him and ask. Tell him that you're struggling with whatever it is. He's not going to be surprised. He may not answer the way you want him to. He may not respond the way you want him to. But he's the one with the answers. And you can go to him. And he loves for his children to come to him when they are at the end of themselves, when they are perplexed, when they have a question. So I think that's one application. Ask. Ask your question of God. Ask your question of brothers and sisters that you know in the church if you have questions. And there, I know there are subjects in our culture now that one older generation may be uncomfortable to talk about, that the younger generation talks about all the time. And older folks who are more mature in Christ, supposedly, we got to get over that. There is no question that can't be asked. We have a Prince of Peace. We have a wonderful Counselor. We have a God who knows our hearts and knows what we need and wants us to be dependent on him. 
So ask. Zechariah asks and Mary asks. How will this be? And she learns of the Holy Spirit and that the Holy Spirit can overshadow her and that anything is possible with God. And after asking her question and after hearing the answer, she responds with, I am the Lord's servant. She responds with a humble submissiveness. That's amazing. So how does she do that? How in the world does this 15-year-old girl, probably right in that range, how does she have the faith to be told something that's going to bring her chaos, probably rejection and difficulty? How does she respond with such poise, with such faith? And I think the hint comes a little later. She goes to visit Elizabeth. Why? Because the angel told her, hey, this is happening to your relative Elizabeth. She's pregnant. She's old. She's pregnant. Go. She goes. He doesn't tell her to go, but he tells her about her. She goes. And what does she find? Elizabeth's pregnant. And when they greet one another, the baby in Elizabeth's womb leaps and Elizabeth knows that Mary is carrying the Messiah. How is that possible? So there's all this verification, authentication happening in Mary's circumstances. And she ends up writing a song, and we call it the Magnificat, and it's Latin for magnificent. And in this song that she writes, I love it, out of the trouble, out of the trusting God in her trouble, comes God's assurance, and out of that comes her praising God and giving him glory. Through song, I love it. There's a bunch of songs in the Christmas story. God works with power in people's lives, and they write a song, and they praise him with it. So in the Magnificat, she says this. I'm not going to read the whole thing. But at the end, she says, he has helped his servant Israel, he being God, in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. (laughs) What did Mary do? In 4 BC, Mary connected the dots by the Spirit's enabling, and she saw that her little story was caught up in the grand narrative of God's covenant story of redemption. She was a piece, a part, a very integral person in this story, and God had chosen to use her to bring the Messiah, Emmanuel, into the world. A child is born, a son is given. She made the connection. So what is this yarn behind me anyway? It's a timeline, if you will. It doesn't go into eternity past and eternity future. It has to stop with the goalposts there. So between 1800 BC and in the garden, in the beginning, I'm not sure how many thousands of years are right here. It really doesn't matter. What I know from scripture is that in the garden, God said to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. He spoke those words to Satan in the garden. He 
shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's the first hint of the gospel of grace in the scriptures after the fall. It happened right after the fall in the garden thousands of years ago, people. And then in 1800 BC, the Lord comes to Abraham, has a conversation with him and says this, and I will make you, Abraham, a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God is promising that through Abraham, one will come who will bless all the nations of the earth. That was in 1800 BC. In 1000 BC, 800 years later, eight centuries. Can you get that in your head? The prophet Samuel says to King David, when your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you who will come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. I know, you're thinking Solomon. Then he says this, your throne shall be established forever. This is one of these prophecies that has a double fulfillment. Yes, David's son will take his throne, but another descendant of David will one day take the throne of Israel, of God's people, and he will reign forever. So that's 1000 BC, 740 BC. But you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler, an authority. You know that text where it says the increase of his government? You could almost switch the word authority in there. Of the increase of his rule. The rule over creation. Of the increase It will have no end and it will continue to grow. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Micah's prophecy, 740. And then 730 BC, Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. 730 BC. Seven centuries before Mary's life. Gabriel visits Zechariah. Gabriel visits Mary, foretells the birth of two sons, both miraculous, John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Christ, Jesus. Wow. So how does Mary, how does she do it? Mary connects her story with the meta-narrative of God's redemptive story. And there she finds faith. She finds assurance from God's fulfilled prophecies through time and through history. She is familiar with her scriptures, the Old Testament, and she recognizes how her life gets caught up in the grand story of God's story, and in that she finds courage, and in that she finds an inner peace to deal with the outer chaos of her life, because she knows whose she is and who her father is. And she glorifies him and praises him 
and has that peace. So, I tried to do this timeline somewhat accurately with regards to space, but here we are, 2018. Look how far it is from the cross. Sorry, the table may be blocking the view of some of you. I'm not going to touch all that. So we're talking 2,000 years from here. 2,000 years back, what was going on? Abraham, give or take. 2,000 years into the future, us. How do we find peace? We're not looking for peace. What we really need is shalom. Peace is nice, our definition, but shalom is far better. Because here's the deal. We all start out with a problem, and that's that we have an innate rebellion against the creator of the universe who longs for us to know him, who longs for us to have him inside of us, to have a relationship with us, who longs for us to reflect his glory to a dark world. The problem is, we're not sound in and of ourselves. We're not solid because of an innate, deep propensity to want to rule our own lives, to be in control, to not be submissive to an authority figure who loves us. We want to be our own God. And it's funny that Peter talks about us when we're in Christ he talks about us being living stones, doesn't he? We're living stones. When the Holy Spirit comes to reside and realign our hearts and to solidify us and to integrate that which has been disintegrating, we become sound more and more through life. How? We become sound as the Holy Spirit through trials and trouble through a lack of peaceful circumstances builds into us truth and life. You with me? And over time, the Holy Spirit takes us from being something that is disintegrated and weak and makes us something that is solid and strong. Do you see it? Shalom. How do you become complete? How do you find peace? Not by avoiding the big questions of who am I and why am I here and where am I going, but by leaning into those questions and asking those hard questions and finding that God has the answers to those questions. You may not always like his answer, but it's real and it's true. And the prophecy that the angels came, the angels came and told the shepherds that, a real baby, a real daughter of Eve would come and that that daughter of Eve would take a real throne, the throne of David, and that he would be born in a real city on a real day of the calendar in Bethlehem in 4 BC. And that that very real child, his name is Jesus, would live an amazing life. He would heal people. He would give blind sight to the blind. He would heal the lame. He would heal the leper. He would bring freedom to those that are enslaved by sin and death. 
And he would die a suffering servant's death on a cross and on the third day rise again from the dead. Amen. And then he would ascend and sit at the right hand of God the Father. And one day he has promised the God of this very real historical line that's grounded in history and is factual. He has promised. The same God who has been faithful all of these centuries has promised. Jesus has promised to return and to establish his kingdom in a new heaven and a new earth. And it's coming. And I don't know how far this piece of yarn will be, but one day Christ is coming and his kingdom will be established and it'll be more glorious than we can imagine. And you, if you are in Christ, will be a citizen of that kingdom. Shalom in fullness. So what do we do now? I'm this becoming more and more this. How? Through trouble and trial and a lack of peaceful circumstances. And as I lean on the author of this story, and as I trust in his champion and his redeemer and his savior, Jesus, who was real and is real and knows your name and is alive right now and sits at the right hand of God and intercedes on your behalf for your heart that is tempted to grow hard every day. He, he's coming. And through faith in him, God gives you the Holy Spirit, which then powers you to become more and more and more real, more and more solid, more and more able to withstand the waves of this broken world and not lose your shalom. You might lose your peace, but you can't lose your shalom. Do you have it? How do you get it? You have to have a relationship with him. And that's the gospel. You trust him. You trust what he did for you. You acknowledge that you are broken and that you need shalom and you need the prince of shalom to give you his spirit, to give you his life, to restore you. He came to pay for the penalty of all your sins and he rose again. And he says, if you trust me, if you trust what I did for you, I lived a perfect life to give you my righteousness, which you can't earn, which you can't muster up on your own. And I died to pay the penalty of your sins on the cross so you don't have to die a death, a physical execution. You don't have to go through that because I died in your place and I lived a righteous life in your place. And if you trust me and put all of your heart and dependency on me, I will be your savior. I will be your champion. I will be your king. I will be your shalom. Ah, it's awesome. That's the gift of Christmas is not only to receive shalom, many of us have received it, but now we get to dispense it in the chaos of this world by leaning in our troubles on Christ and asking him what to do and how to follow him through into people's brokenness, into our own brokenness, and be dispensers of forgiveness, dispensers of grace, dispensers of mercy. We have that power in us, not in us. Not, not, it's not us. It's the spirit of Christ in us. It's the shalom in us. In Romans 5, it says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to what Paul says. Through him we also 
We have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character. Character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame. Mary knew that hope in God would not put her to shame, even though those in her community might misunderstand what God was doing. Wow. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, in history, in reality, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Wow. You with me? Shalom. This is what God is doing. He is making you more and more sound through your lack of peace as you trust in the shalom in your heart to guide you through your troubles and trials. And he promises to finish what he started And you are a living stone with Christ, our cornerstone. And we are the church, living stones arranged together to be the body of Christ in Maitland and Orlando and in the world. It's him, not us. What a privilege we have. We can trust him. The gospel is true. Jesus is real and true and knows your name and loves you. Do you know him? Receive him if you don't. And if you've lost track and allowed peace to become your goal rather than shalom, repent of that. Surrender to his will and whatever he's doing through your challenging circumstances and ask him to guide you through and give you courage and strength to go and to shine and to reflect his nature to your spouse, to your kids, to your neighbors, to your workmates, to your church. You with me? Pray with me. Father God, we praise you for who you are. We thank you that you are the God of Shalom, the Prince of Shalom, the authority over it. And we have the opportunity to know you personally, to be reintegrated, to be made sound, to be fulfilled, to be completed. So Father, by your Holy Spirit, enable us to receive more and more and more of you and to trust your word that's true and that is life and that sets us more and more free. Come. Prince of peace, come and have your way with us. We are your servants. Let it be as your word says. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen.